All right. So we're building people who build churches. Individual discipleship is the key. And uh, Paul, of course, is the father. We'll find in this text of Timothy, his son in the Lord. And he's not his earthly father. He's his spiritual father. And he ends up taking on a lot of the responsibilities that Paul entrusted to him as his uh, one of his main disciples in the Lord Jesus. And so... um, when it comes to um, you know the word of God and ministry, training and ministry involves training uh, people of influence, and and uh, obviously Paul was a person of influence for Christ. Timothy becomes a person of influence for Christ, but it would seem their personalities are very very different, and so we don't have to be clones; we just have to be like Christ. And so, <clears throat> um, I believe that God has given us this epistle today so we can help uh, you know engage in the process of true discipleship and and being focused on the things that God would have us focus on. So, uh, you know, I had a friend named Shirley Reed. She was a, she was not your average disciple maker. I don't, any of you guys know Shirley Reed here? I don't think any of y'all do. Shirley Reed worked at City Union Mission. She was there as a volunteer. And, uh, and so, um, one time I led a person to Christ who attended Vineyard Church in Kansas City. And, uh, while there, uh, they heard a sermon. Um, and so, their background and uh, their life uh, led them to uh, a place called City Union Mission where Shirley worked. And um, they found this person just helping people struggling. And it was this lady, Shirley Reed, and they called her the mama. She was a volunteer coordinator, and she was the person you talked to if you wanted help. Uh, she saw something um, in others that uh, they didn't see in themselves, and she connected them with people that could help them, and that's what she did. Shirley passed away several years ago, and uh, she left a long line of fruit in, in her wake. It was my privilege to be able to, to do her funeral. And part of that wake was me, I and mean, she helped me personally as well. Uh, when I was coming up in the ministry, she just uh, was constantly encouraging me and helping uh, the people we'd lead to Christ go the right direction in the Christian Life Program. Program, the city and mission and and uh, one of her disciples that she encouraged was a guy named Mark Heckman and uh, now she didn't just sit down and disciple him but she was a mama to Mark she just had this ability to to come around these young men and her she was a mother and uh, herself and she just encouraged people that needed the encouraging encouragement and she had this list of you know men and I'm sure there were some women too but she worked at the men's center who really gave her a lot of uh, you know credit credit for um, you know using them in, in their life. One time I was uh, I was pastoring here and I was walking through the park and uh, or through the zoo one day and I don't remember why. I think I may have been with Samuel. I don't remember, but I'm in the middle of the zoo and on the back side, nobody's around. I walk up, there's Shirley Reed. I'm like, Shirley, what are you doing? She's like, I'm walking with God, just praying. That's where I come to pray. And I was just like, wow, that's so much like Shirley Reed. So it's just a godly woman. I mean, she was the real deal. And so <clears throat> it reminds me of what the, the, the Bible says in First Timothy 1 and verse 5. He says, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. And uh, because uh, this lady, Shirley, was there, a lot of other people uh, made it uh, not only into the kingdom of God, but in to a right relationship and discipleship with others. And so when you do an inventory of your life, 
You know, who's following Christ because of you? Uh, my friend Shirley had lots of fruit in her life because she followed Christ and others followed Christ because of her. So what we're going to look at in the next uh, few um, uh, lessons here is salvation through Jesus Christ, our relationship to the Lord, our relationship to the law, which we talked a little bit about this morning, and our relationship to the lost. And that's so important that we illuminate, uh, we are filled with the light of Christ and show it to others. So in our text, First uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment, of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my, here it comes, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of, end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. And so our relationship with the Lord uh, provides authority. That's the first thing that we see as you look at this text in verse 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. I just pray, God, a blessing to the reading and the hearing of your word. Thank you again for the, the wonderful words of life that you've given us in your word. Thank you for the sing, singing and the songs <coughs> that have gone to your throne. Thank you, Lord, for this text tonight. And Lord, I pray that it would aid in preparing our heart to pray and do the priestly work of intercession. As we think about folks like Sonia Ferguson and, and uh, Gwen Arney and many others that are in need of prayer even this evening, we pray, Heavenly Father, that your good hand be upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> the first thing we see with our relationship with the Lord is that it provides authority. So our relationship with the Lord provides authority, provides authenticity, and it protects us from adversity. The first thing that we see here is you have a thesis. Uh, one is not fit to be in authority unless they're under authority. How many of you have heard that before? You probably have. If you've read Watchman Nee, uh, he beats the drum on that. So one is not fit to be in authority unless they are under authority. So Paul's relationship with Timothy reveals this. See, Paul was God's officer. He was God's officer. So one's not fit to be in authority unless they're under authority. Uh, and uh, Paul's relationship with Timothy, uh, of course, demonstrated that. Point A is relationship. And Paul was God's officer. He was an officer. When you see him writing in the introduction, he, he doesn't say, Paul, your buddy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God uh, and our Savior, uh, our God, I'm sorry, God, our Savior, and uh, Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. In the second epistle, he'll charge him like a soldier. I charge you, therefore, Timothy, right, my son of the Lord. He he wants him to be like a soldier. So he had authority in this relationship. So uh, Paul <clears throat> Paul's relationship with Timothy, point A, uh, he was God's officer. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. So Paul went from the apostate uh, to an apostle. Right. So in uh, Acts chapter 9, uh, you guys are familiar with this text, but let's go back and refresh ourselves on what happened there. In Acts chapter 9, he has this incredible meeting with the Lord on the road to Damascus. And uh, we see in verse 1, it says, And Saul, that was his name before, he was called of the Lord in salvation, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And he was on a mission, uh, not for God. He thought he was on a mission for God, but he was actually fighting against Jesus. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And, of course, I believe he was talking about the the pricks of his heart. And in verse 6 it says, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did he uh, eat nor drink. And so it says in verse ten, and there were a certain disciple. There was there were there was a certain disciple. I'm sorry, in Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, uh, for behold, he prayeth. And he had seen a vision, uh, in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered the Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. And uh, here uh, <coughs> he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. A type of the tribulation Jew there, by the way. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hand on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou uh, camest, hath sent me, and thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. All right, so that's a lot of that's a lot of long stuff. But what we see here, a long account, but what we see there is that, that Paul went from an apostate uh, to an apostle. Paul went from being an apostate uh, to an apostle in that state. So when I think of a an officer, I imagine a police officer uh, or a man with authority, right? And so Paul has he has authority from God. He's been called an apostle. He opens up his epistle that way. And uh, what was his his authority? Well, it's found in chapter in this chapter chapter nine and verse fifteen. His authority is there. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So his authority comes from God to take this message to um, the Gentiles, to kings, and the children of Israel. Paul had no useful authority until until he was under God's authority. Now Paul was in authority, right? He had letters, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, and uh, he was on his way. He had, Ananias knew that, that he was a man that was under authority to come and persecute the church but verse 14 there it says and and here he hath authority from the chief priests right his authority was under the law it was under the nation of israel but the nation of israel had rejected jesus so now god says hey listen listen paul that authority is not good enough you need to be under you're not under my authority because israel's not under my authority i know you mean well son here but this is what you're going to do you're going to follow me and i'm going to make you an apostle and so paul uh, inadvertently was not under god's authority he didn't really realize he thought he was doing god of service by persecuting the church 
church, but he found out he wasn't. And so he, once he really repented of that, now he was under a useful authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but that was going to bring suffering. So Paul had to see Jesus as God, of course, to be saved. And this is why he is careful to say God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ in his introduction. That gets back to what we were talking about this morning with uh, Jesus Christ being God. He is equal to the Father, Son. Uh, these three are one. So, obviously, the, there's, a, there's the Father is the greatest in, in, the, in the order. But, but Jesus Christ is God. So that's why he's careful to say that. Uh, that G- he's God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul immediately recognized and submitted to Jesus' authority as Lord. So Paul had no hope until he understood Jesus was God. This was because he realized Jesus was the lawgiver and the law keeper. So the only man who could give and keep the law was Jesus. And what a relief that was to Paul. So in your notes there, I put in Romans chapter 7 and verse 8, it says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought on me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, Sin was dead. So Paul here is trying to keep the law. He's a law. He's a lawyer. He come up under the feet of Gamaliel. He wants to keep the law. He's zealous for the law. But he says, you know what? While I'm trying to keep the law, what's happening is all manner of concupiscence. That's unbridled sin, unbridled lust is just consuming me. And that's his own admission in Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. And so uh, Romans seven twenty four says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that, that uh, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And of course Jesus Christ is the only one that can deliver us from the law of sin. So point two, uh, Timothy was Paul's um, offspring. Offspring is the blank there. Timothy was Paul's offspring. So Paul's relationship with Timothy uh, was that one with authority, but uh, he was also his offspring. And to Timothy he says in verse 2, my own son in the faith grace mercy and peace from god our father and jesus christ our lord so paul viewed timothy as his son uh, not as a subordinate right it wasn't his subordinate it was his son and so he was uh, he treated him like like that timothy was uh, a certain disciple in acts chapter 16 and verse 1 but now he's a son in the faith and so in Acts, in Acts 16, 1, he's just called a certain disciple. And, and he was known for following Christ, even though he had a Gentile father. Uh, Paul comes along and says, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which is a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek. So the, we learn that about Timothy. He starts off as a certain disciple, but at length he's a son of, Tim, of, of Paul. So how do you view people who God places under you, right? And that's important. Um, do, you, do you view them as children? Uh, do you view them as employees, students? Uh, it's important part of spiritual maturity. Uh, though we're under the Lord's authority, we are not to lord over the flock. You know, that's really sickening when somebody lets authority go to their head. Don't you hate that? You know, they get in charge and all of a sudden, I just was reading in Isaiah uh, and that, that phrase the other day, holier than thou, right? They think that they're holier than thou. And uh, we also have very crude vernacular sayings for that, which I won't get into. But the bottom line is they, they really think that they, you know, that they are better than somebody else because they're an authority. Um, that's obviously not the way that Paul approached Timothy. He approached Timothy as a father to a son because he was his offspring 
And that's an important part of spiritual maturity. Though you're under the Lord's authority, we're not to lord over the flock of God, right? You're not you're not ready to be entrusted with with responsibility if you want to lord over people. And so we have to be careful with that when we do discipleship because when we disciple people, when we entrust someone to disciple someone, you need spiritual maturity in the person discipling because it's like uh, if you don't, you have dysfunction, spiritual dysfunction. And so uh, if you have someone that's, uh, you know, say 14 years old and she comes up pregnant, a female, and then she has to raise her baby, guess what? Not always, but oftentimes, my mom was a young teenage mom, um, so... You know, there's exceptions, but uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, that can breed more dysfunction, right? <clears throat> and it's not usually healthy. But it's best to have a father that takes, you know, and a wedding and and a nuclear family. That's what's best to raise children in. That doesn't always happen, but that's what's best, right? And so, if you have children raising children then you're going to produce offspring that are really not not really getting everything they need. It's better if they if you have adults <coughs> mature adults raising children and have a maturity level uh, that can can understand how to nurture and understand how to control themselves and, and be a mature leader. So Timothy was not uh, a purebred Jew, but being a son of a Gentile uh, who appeared to be lost, evidently, because he's noted as being a son of a Gentile, right? Not of a saint. Or, you know, he wasn't the son of so-and-so. He wasn't the son of this guy or that guy in the church. He's just the son of a Gentile in uh, Acts 16, <clears throat> a Greek, as he's named. Um you know he needed this fatherly influence that Paul gave him in the Lord, and uh, and so he's Paul's son in the faith, though he has a Greek father. And uh, man, I can relate to that. I I, uh, I ha- I'm careful of what I say because I obviously everyone can hear what I'm saying on the internet, uh, and I love my earthly father. My I owe a lot to my earthly father, and I had a good father, so I don't want to I don't want to <clears throat> you know par- draw parallels here that are are incongruent, but. Um, or lines that are not correct, but but I did get saved, and God, in His providence, put an older man in my discipleship uh, life, who was almost old enough to be my father. I mean, Earl's. I mean, he, he'd have been a young father, but I could have been his son for sure. His daughter, uh, Carrie Green, uh, is now like my sister. Like I just go up and I spent the few days with Carrie and Bo Green. Well, I remember I was sixteen, and Carrie's like you know eight. You know, and uh, we're only about eight years apart. I mean, we were we were like literally like family, but that's because of Jesus, and so He was able to to God used Him in my life as a discipler. So I count Earl as my father in the Lord. Though I had good pastors and preachers and other influences in my life, like Herb Newton and many others, uh, and Jeff Trude. The the reality is that. That Earl, God used Earl, really, is my father in the Lord. When you talk about being having a father in the Lord, and unfortunately, not everybody gets that, you know. And I hope, I hope in our church we foster that, you know. And I don't mean to be sexist. I mean that you get the same type of relationship with a female. So just kind of extrapolate that over to a female. I'm not trying to just frame that in the male context, but. Um, uh, but it's important that we have that. Now, you're going to have those kind of relationships when the people discipling are mature themselves and they understand their call to go, right? These are people that understand the mission. They take it seriously. And when they invest in people, they're investing the Word of God in them in hopes that they also mature and fulfill the will of God. And so, 
uh, Paul needs his son to be a soldier. He's going somewhere with this. So back in our text, and make sure you keep a finger back in the text. I'll be go, I'll be going back and forth. Back in our text in First Timothy chapter one, in verse eighteen. Somebody read that real quick in verse uh, eighteen, one eighteen. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. So, so he says this charge. <clears throat> excuse me, guys. I'm having some problems. Obviously, uh, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. So here's this issue. He's a, he says he's a son, and he is, <clears throat> but he's giving him a charge. And when we get to the end of the verse, we see why. Because he needs him to war a good warfare. Right? He's saying, son, it's time to take the training wheels off. You know, I got to slap a, I got to slap an AR in your hand, and I know it's not as good as an M16, but you're just going to have to go with this, <laughs> and uh, and you're going to have to go. You are a soldier, and uh, and he's going to have to, you're going to have to fulfill this role, son. And so, uh, Paul desperately needs Timothy to do what he what he's done, right? He needs someone to come behind him and do the hard work of standing in the gap and facing the opposition that uh, was there in the church in those days. So Paul needs Timothy to do. Uh, what he has done before, bearing fruit spiritually, growing fruit spiritually, and engaging faithfully in sons of God to minister and advance the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> and to my knowledge, he did that in Ephesus, which was no small task. And uh, anybody know, just by way of remembrance, what happened to Timothy? What is like hit secular history record happened to, to Timothy? He was martyred, right? Anybody know how? Yeah, he was like beat to death, I think, and drugged through the street. I think in Ephesus is my recollection. It's what we the tradition holds. We I wasn't there, but that's what the, the the record holds of history. And so he ended up becoming a martyr. I mean, he died like a soldier. Um, so Jesus needs faithful men, uh, men not faithful boys, right? And we think of young Timothy, but I don't know how young Timothy really was, especially by the time we get to Second Timothy. Um, you know, he, but he was certainly younger than Paul. And he needed to be a man regardless of his age. I just got a video. I need to roll that video. I have a video from Doug Pearson. He sent me about the Lollards. And uh, it's a good little video. I need to, I'll tell you what, I'll post it online uh, somewhere and send a link out. And you guys can see it. But uh, uh, it's a good video clip. And and Doug's Doug was so fired up because Whitfield, um, when he was uh, getting the Bible, and <clears throat> it was Whitfield, not Tyndale. So this was before Tyndale's Bible. Or Whitcliffe, I said Whitfield, yeah, Whitcliffe. Whitcliffe, the Lawlers were very, there was a time uh, in this uh, video where they say that uh, 50% of the people were Lawlers, meaning uh, were able to read the Bible in their vernacular and preach it. And, and were very effectual. And this is in Great Britain in England. And, of course, uh, they were burning them at the stake. And so as they were being trained, they were not only being trained what the Bible says and not only what to preach and how to preach, but how to die. I mean, these guys, when they went out, there was no backup plan. There was no safety net. There was nothing. They just went out by faith. And a lot of times they, they died. It reminds you of the faith like you find when you go to India, uh, places like that. These guys just go out by faith. And they don't know what's going to happen. And there's no safety plan, right? And they just trust Jesus. And uh, they are willing, literally, to give their life. 
And so I don't believe Timothy needed to be reminded of Paul's authority as uh, the father or apostle. Uh, I think he understood that. But Paul wrote these things so others might examine their relationship with Christ. For there are some in the church claiming authority that were not under authority. Okay, so Paul makes it very clear in this epistle, right? He's in authority and he's delegating authority. Why did he do that? Because there was others in the church uh, who were wanting to be in authority that weren't under authority. They were claiming authority that wasn't their authority. And especially when you get into Asia, by the time Paul ends his ministry, the churches of Asia have been turned on him because of what we saw in 2 Corinthians, remember? So there were people that were, were saying, yeah, Paul don't have any authority. And people thought they were all they were they thought they were somebody. But you know what? Paul's making sure people understand. No, I'm in authority and I'm delegating authority, and therefore Timothy, son Timothy, you have authority. Now I'm charging you, right? You have to war good warfare. You need to step up to the plane. Point B. Uh, God's relationship uh, with Ephesus. Let's talk about that. So we've seen Paul's relationship with Timothy. Uh, Paul was God's <clears throat> what was Paul? Paul was, God, uh, Paul was God's officer, and Timothy was Paul's offspring. So that's what we've seen thus far. Point B, God's relationship <clears throat> with Ephesus. In 1 uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, the subject of Jesus being God was important. And so uh, in, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, let's look at that. And there's 20 verses here, so I'm going to go ahead and read this uh, fairly rapidly if I can. Um, <clears throat> Acts chapter 19 and verse 21 through 41. After these things uh, were ended, Paul purposed in the... Uh, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. Uh, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. In the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that this craft, by, <clears throat> by this craft we have our wealth. Wherefore, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So he's getting the message pretty clear. Uh, So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana uh, should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed. He's attacking our culture, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when he heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of Ephesus. Man, he gets them stirred up. He's he's like a, a union leader. Like my dad used to be a, what he do, what they call wildcat strikes. So that's like not even even sanctioned by the union. It's just getting everybody to walk out, you know, get on the back of the truck and get everybody wound up. He was like Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, he's he's getting everybody fired up, saying, man, this is hurting our trade. It's hurting our city. It's hurting our culture. They're going to shut down Diana of Ephesus. And everybody's like, great is Ephesus. You know, so there's a whole uproar. In verse 29, the whole city was filled with confusion and having caught 
Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in and the people... Uh, under the people, the disciples suffered him not, meaning they allowed him not to do that. And verse thirty-one, and certain of the chief of uh, Asia, which uh, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused. It's the second time we see confused, and the more part uh, knew not wherefore they were to come together, and so everybody just showed up. You know, it's just a big mob. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with his hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried, Great is Diana of Ephesus. And they just start chanting this. And when uh, the town clerk uh, had appeased the people, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, uh, for ye have brought hither these men, which are at neither neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are, dis, uh, and there are deputies. Let them... Uh, and plead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called into question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we uh, we may be given account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dis, uh, dismissed the assembly. And so Paul comes in in this crazy situation. And, uh, <clears throat> and what we see here is that, that Diana, the god of Ephesus, uh, was esteemed to be the goddess of Turkey. And while Paul uh, established the church at Ephesus, Timothy and Erastus had gone into Macedonia, which is the current location north uh, of Greece across the Aegean Sea, not too far from um, our friends in Albania, right, in that region. And uh, and so the pioneer works ahead of Paul's arrival in Acts 19 and verse 22. So Paul's dealing with all this drama in Ephesus. Paul was introducing the creator to a culture who worshipped Diana the goddess that they created with their own hands. And they were pretty proud of her. Right? That's the kind of environment that, that uh, you know... That was that, that Paul was stand, starting this church in. So we we note uh, that she was profitable, right? In verse twenty four, uh, Demetrius is like, man, this lady is bringing us some cash, right? This this uh, Demetrius is like, he's a silversmith, and he says, man, there's shrines for Diana, and they bring no small gain to the craftsmen. So this is an economic benefit, and she's also very popular, right? I mean, immediately they start saying, great is Diana of Ephesus, and this is a cultural issue, as, as he was going about. And Demetrius had this down. He's like, he's saying that these these are dumb, and these idols made by hands are not to be worshipped. So Demetrius is getting the message. He gets what Paul's saying. He's like, and you know what? That's going to put me out of business. I'm not going to have a job if this keeps up, because these, there's, he's having influence on people. And in uh, verse 26 and verse 34, very clearly he was having a, uh, these folks were very, very, uh, very uh, warm to the goddess Diana, not just because they really believed in her, but because they believed in the money that she brought to him. And, uh, and so Timothy, point two, was to charge those teaching bad doctrine in the church. Now, if you think about this, let's go back to what Paul says in his introduction, where we are in First Timothy. <clears throat> this is the environment 
to which uh, Paul says to Timothy in verses 3 and 4 of our text, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So there were fables and endless genealogies being introduced that did not build the church but destroyed it. Diana was the goddess of fertility, so fruitless, uh, fruitfulness and offsprings were a big part of the Ephesian culture. And so this is why Paul was pointing out the authority of Christ to ordain officers in the church, and God's offspring were not directly born from the gospel. <clears throat> um, I need to restate that. So this is why Paul was pointing out uh, the authority of Christ to ordain officers in the church, and that God's offspring were not directly born from the gospel Paul preached. <clears throat> No, they should. They were directly born from the gospel Paul preached. I need. To, I misstated that. That's a bad note. That's like totally wrong. Were there we go. One word makes a big difference. Like I said this morning, so they were the offspring of the gospel that Paul preached. So this was the important. This was important because there was some taking taking on the authority to teach uh, that that had gone off course. People were wanting to teach that it shouldn't have been. Now, we didn't read verse 6, but just slip on down to verse 6. It says, "...from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling." There's some people that have swerved. Boy, have we seen that in the last days as we get closer to the coming of Christ. People swerve off of the Word of God and uh, swerve away from pure doctrine. He's like, Timothy, I need you to stand in there while I'm off doing the work of ministry because there's people swerving, right? They're getting off track. They're getting off the road. So this was important because there were some taking on that authority to teach that had gone off course. They were, As we say that, they've gone off course. That's what was happening. They were going off course. I was out with my daughter this morning driving, right, after, after church. She did a pretty good job, but around those corners, I'm like, honey, you got to slow down before the corner or you're going to go off course, right? You're going to be in the next lane around the corner here. So you got to slow it down before you get there because I don't want you to swerve and go off course. And so <clears throat> there's some who were taking on that authority to teach that had no nothing profitable to say. As a matter of fact, Paul in verse 7 calls it vain jangling. Those were vain janglers, and uh, you don't want to be a vain jangler. So point three, uh, Timothy's job was twofold. This is this is where I'll stop tonight. Timothy's job was twofold. Uh, you probably can guess what that is, but I'm going to give you the first part. Since I put twofold, you probably want to put extra notes in there. First it was to give charge. That was what he was doing. He was to give charge um, <clears throat> to those who troubled the church by teaching bad doctrine. Right? He was to charge them that were causing trouble. Secondly, he was to give. Uh, give charity out to the pure heart, the pure hearted and the faithful and unfeigned. And, uh, and so in verse 7, that's what you see. Desiring to be teachers of the law, they understand neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. And so Timothy, uh, if you go back to verse 3 in the text there, he says, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies and minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. And then uh, verse 5 is that second part, which is to, <coughs> I, uh, um, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and faith unfeigned. So you couple that, the charge, uh, the charge of verse 3 and the charity of verse five and so that brings us to our second point which we'll, we'll get to next week on how our relationship with the lord um, <clears throat> produces 
uh, authenticity. So we'll talk about that next week. So um, that is where we'll stop for tonight. So that's uh, that's that's one of my two three points. So we'll try to get to my next two next time. All right. So any questions about the text or comments or thoughts? Well, that's a good question. Uh, what fell down from Jupiter, we do not know. The marble. Huh? The marble that they made into the statue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things around. Uh, they also thought that, that uh, Silas and Paul were Jupiter and Mercury. So there's a lot of reasons for that we won't get into tonight, most likely. But there was some demonic activity happening in that area. And uh, <clears throat> they were... They were pretty. Something fell down, and they were they were worshiping it. It wasn't good. Yeah, meteors could fall. Yeah. We just don't know, do we? That's our best guess. We know it wasn't God. It'd be demonic activity. So anyway, that's another. Yeah. It's a, it's a filthy beast.